Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 43. And I already did mention it, but I will apologize. I sound far worse than I feel. But my apologies nonetheless. All right, Isaiah 43, I would remind you, and this is God's word. The grass will wither, and the flower will fade. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Hear what he says to you. But now, and thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it's true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon. I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord. Your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
The wild beasts will honor me, (coughs) jackals and ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I'm formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary, weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would give life and light to your word, really to our hearts and understanding your word. And as we have prayed so many times in the past, and you've answered every time, would you sustain my voice for the next bit? And might it speak your words, not my own. For Christ's sake, amen. It's a big week in the life of Christ Ridge. A lot of change takes place in the next hour. If you're visiting today, uh, you might not know the story of what's taking place. Our uh, beloved associate pastor, Brandon Williams, is resigning today. Again, it's not... Uh, for moral failure, it's not for sin, it's not for anything than the Lord's calling to take him back to the family farm <clears throat> to serve the Lord in a, another holy and a victorious way. But if you don't know, his ministry in this church has been significant, largely because uh, he was hired when I was, we might generously say, mostly dead. His hiring took place while I was in my hospital or convalescing therefrom. Um, resting in a wheelchair at home and in a bed. His ministry uh, represents largely keeping the wheels on the car and keeping the bus moving while I kind of regrew a brain that was functional. Well, somewhat functional, we'll say. His ministry among us represents probably one of the most tumultuous and um, potentially disastrous periods in the history of this church. And yet the Lord used him to provide stability. He was a dear friend before he started, but now leaves one of my best friends in the whole entire world and someone whom I have been privileged to labor beside. And over the last, well, he and I have been working through this for, I guess, four months, but really the last three have been the biggies. It has provided an opportunity for me to think about the future and those that You might not know this about me. I have absolutely no idea what's happening in the next six days. 
but I have a very good idea of what I think might happen in the next six years. It's kind of how my brain operates. I can't uh, navigate a family calendar to save my life. If you want to know what I'm doing Thursday, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. But I have a rough idea of what I'd like to see the church look like over the next decade. That's kind of how I live and into the future. It's weird, I know. But I had opportunity to spend over these last three weeks a significant amount of time thinking about the change that this represents for our church. And thinking that, you know, in the reality, uh, some of us, that, that's going to be a really hard thing. You might hate change. Some of you hate change, I know. And the idea of me even mentioning the dirty word of change, it makes you kind of get all sweaty and uncomfortable. Some of you, you, you think about losing the, the shepherding that Brandon brought to our body and how that will be felt very acutely. Others of you worry, I know, that what are we going to do now that the nice one is leaving? What's, what's going to happen? How do, I, how do I make it with only Michael left? And that, that's a valid question. I, I feel like. Some of you, he's been a beloved friend and someone who's cared for you for many years, actually, even before he made it to this place. And in thinking about that, it, it really has kind of been like, okay, this represents in many ways the opportunity for us to be afraid. For some of us, maybe the opportunity to be angry. What is God doing? Maybe for some of us, the opportunity to be anxious or to worry. An opportunity for us maybe to uh, kind of doubt God's competency. Maybe for some of you, it's opportunity to say, well, now he's gone, we can do things the way I want to do them. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe you're saying that. And thinking those thoughts about kind of what does the future hold and how does change work out in a body? There's kind of one often reoccurring theme is that so often the more change that takes place, the more room there is for fear and insecurity and selfishness. In two weeks from today, we're going to be nominating and electing a pulpit committee. I know of very few ways to hurt people's feelings better, faster, and more comprehensively than electing a pulpit committee. It's magnificent. An opportunity for fear, insecurity, and selfishness. And so we go to God's Word today asking the Lord to help us How do we deal with fear, insecurity, or selfishness? Particularly the fear, insecurity, and selfishness that might come from a significant change in the life of the church. It's probably not too far off, weirdly enough, from where we are actually in the text. Chapter 42, in the beginning of it, was great comfort and consolation. It was great hope and help. The Lord has compassion on his people. The problem is where it ends. Well, the Lord has promised to be their helper, to be their compassionate God, to be their caregiver. The people still won't listen. Well, he's promised to watch out for them and to be their God. We just won't hear it. Again, kind of stuck 
and that fear and insecurity stuck in that selfishness. So much so that uh, conflict's going to come, the Lord's going to provide discipline that's going to take them into very difficult ways. It's this kind of reoccurring theme in the book of Isaiah. God's people are unwilling to listen, and so he sends hard times for them, and then in light of that, to show them that he is their God, and they are his people. So in the midst of this kind of uh, tremendous change that's going to take place, this very difficult thing that's going to come for them, God's judgment placed upon them, even eventually taking them out of the land and into exile. Chapter 43 is God's direct address to his people in light of that. How are you supposed to think and feel about your world in light of this great change and difficulty? Should you be afraid? Should you be anxious? Should you be insecure? Should you be selfish? What should we be? We're going to look, if my voice holds out and the clock doesn't go any faster, five things. Five different things the Lord calls us to think about as we navigate those kind of rocky waters of change and hurt and heartache and difficulty and Though I suspect not in our case, but in theirs, the Lord's discipline. Starting out, it shows up, well, verses 1 through 7 form a complete unit, but we're going to look at two themes in verses 1 through 7. He kind of pairs them and bounces back and forth between them. Theme 1 shows up in verse 1. Theme 2 shows up in verse 2. Theme 1 shows up in verse 3 and in verse 4. Theme two shows up in verse five. It's paired back and forth. Notice the two things he then draws out. You're nervous. You're anxious. You're scared. You're afraid. You're hurting. But now thus says the Lord. What does he say? He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, the God of creation, now speaks. What does he say? Fear not. Okay. Command, don't be afraid. In order to not be afraid, I have to have a reason why I shouldn't be afraid. And he has, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name because you are mine. You don't be afraid because you belong to God. He owns you, you're his possession. He's claimed you as his own. The same idea shows up in verses 3 and 4. I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. I'm, I'm buying you. And what am I willing to pay in order to buy you? I'm willing to pay with entire nations. Egypt, Cush, Sheba, Because you're precious in my eyes and honored. I I love you. I'm giving men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. He owns us. And that ownership is a thing that I think many of us in the church think, well, of course God owns me. I mean, he, he owns all of creation. He made me. He formed Adam from the dust and Eve from a rib of Adam. Of course he owns me, but that's not the kind of ownership I don't think that's being addressed in this section. It's not the ownership of creation. 
This is the ownership that in, in some ways probably more closely memor- mirrors like a child with their toys, like a, a little girl with her baby dolls. I mean, how, how does a little girl interact with her baby dolls? She knows every one of their names. She knows every one of the kind of marks on their face, which crayon it was that did it. Knows which parts of the hair are kind of jankily cut because she cut them with scissors. It's not the possession of, hey, this thing belongs to me, but it is the possession of love, of affection, of intimacy. Right, the, the first kind of uh, ownership that we talk about would be kind of like maybe the, the mass farmer that owns you know, a million chickens or whatever in the chicken farm. The second would be the, the family that keeps chickens in their backyard and has them all named after beloved figures from their favorite TV show or favorite bands or favorite books. Right, th- those chickens aren't just chickens anymore. They're, they're part of the family. They're the, the, they're the pets. We, we love them. There's affection and intimacy. It's not just kind of in the ether God made the world and so he owns the world, though that is true. But what's being addressed here is to say God bought us for a very expensive price and bought us not on kind of prospects like a uh, an athletic team buys some, uh, an athlete hoping they're going to turn out all right. He bought us out of love and affection and intimacy and knowledge, and he bought us ultimately what is hinted at here eventually is with the blood of his son. Now, that's an intriguing thing to think about when you go about kind of having a, an answer or a remedy to fear, insecurity, or selfishness. Right, those three things tend to overlap. They tend to kind of function in a nasty sort of kind of viral clump of some kind. And it's intriguing that really one of the medicines to defeat it is just the knowledge that the Lord in intimacy and love and care owns me. One of the maybe perhaps easiest ways to think about that is to think about what you're willing to spend to buy a thing. In fact, I was kind of preparing this. What is it? Uh, verse four, the end of verse four, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. You may have heard the news this week. Our government did this. Right? We had five U.S. citizens that had been trapped in Iran, I think. I can't remember which. And uh, families wanted to get them out. And so we let five wretched criminals and was it a billion dollars? I forget how much cash we sent with them to Iran to get those five people back. And I'm driving in my car listening and thinking, man, that has to be like a dreadful deal. Like, I'd love to know the level of corruption that's involved in that, that we get five of our citizens and functionally we fund the national, you know, their GDP for the rest of the year. You know, I'm critical as I'm driving in my car being like, man, what are our politicians doing? And then stop for a moment and thought, you know, those families of those five people thought that was the best deal in history. Yeah, I mean, sure, five criminals got loose. Yeah, sure, we spent a fortune in taxpayer dollars. But we got our family back. Like dad's home, mom's home, 
And it only cost us five criminals and a billion dollars. They would have traded the whole nation for them, wouldn't they? I mean, I know I would. My kids were trapped in another country. Man, I'd trade the entire U.S. for them. It'd be the best deal in town. It's interesting to think that really this is, like, it, it reshapes how we think about God's care for us. To think that his ownership, is, it shows in his, the value that he's assigned to us, the blood of his son. And the possession is not just one of ownership, but one of, of intimacy and love. And I love that you get to see how he, he kind of pairs that immediately of that intimacy idea coming out even further. It's not, it's not just ownership, but presence. All right, verse 1 This is what the Lord says, fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you're mine. Verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they're not gonna overwhelm you. When you go through the fire, you're not gonna be burned, the flame will not consume you. Is is it because the river's not gonna be a wet river? Is it because the fire's not gonna be a hot fire? No. The answer is because God is with him. He's going to be present with them. Three and four, the same thing. I'm the Lord your God. I own you. I, I've bought you. I've traded nations and mankind for you. I've bought you. You're my precious possession. Verse five, fear not, I'm with you. I'm with you. As we think about where Christ Ridge goes this week and next week and the week after and the week after and the year after and the year after and the decade after, should the Lord tarry. We can be those people that are captivated by our fears, dominated by our anxieties, driven crazy by our insecurities. Or we may be those that are motivated by this knowledge that I belong to the Lord And he knows me, and he loves me, and he's with me. Now, that knowledge and love and with me was really interestingly established before the world was ever made. The plan of redemption established before creation ever took place. It was planned out from the very beginning, before Adam had chance to sin, before I had chance to sin, before you had chance to sin. But the Lord loves his people so much that he would send his son to die, to redeem them from the pit, from the grave, from hell, from sin, from judgment forever, that he would be with us. He's going to be with us. The same God that was with us while Brandon was with us, the same God that was with us before Brandon was with us, The same God that was with us while I was in the hospital dying and the same God that's with us while I'm not. The same God that will be with us after we're all called to glory and our children and our children's children run the church. Our God is with us. Now he goes to kind of put that then into practice as a a practical example. How can you say God is with us in the middle of difficulty? How can you say God is is with us when people still sin? How can you say God is with us when life hurts? How can you say God is with us when change happens and things are scary? 
Well, verses 8 through 13, Isaiah resorts to a, a, a tool he uses, a literary device, which is an imaginary courtroom debate. He's done this in just previous chapter, but an, an imaginary kind of uh, courtroom setting of disputation. And he uses this now to kind of answer that question of, well, why does it matter what's going to happen? What will, what will the consequence be? Bring out the witnesses. Bring out those that are going to testify to God's care. Bring out those that will testify to God's power. Bring out those that will testify to God's love. Bring out the nation of Israel. Well, problem is, what's the condition of the nation of Israel right now? Pretty bad. In fact, actually, you get this description of them, people who have eyes but are still blind people who have ears who are still deaf, those, those they, they have the ability, they're, they're just not listening. They actually have eyes and ears, but they're not seeing what God has told them to see. They're not hearing what God has told them to hear. And then verse nine, bring in the Gentiles. Bring the nations together, those unbelievers. Bring everybody together, my nation, which should be the good guys, but actually aren't acting like it right now. And the Gentile nations, the unbelievers, who are the bad guys and are acting like it right now. And from that audience, who is able to declare the character of our God? Are any of those people able to bear witness, to testify to who God is and how he is? Are any of those people able? Are they able to explain God's loving possession of his people? Well, you get to see kind of the Lord's new explanation. You want a, you want a reminder of how God loves you. You want proof of how God loves you. You want to see how God loves you. Well, verse 9b, halfway through, who can, among them can declare this and show us the former things? Who's able to be this kind of witness? Who's going to be the one? Well, verse 10, who is it that are going to be the witnesses? Well, you are. Unfaithful Israel, people who struggle with sin, those that are afraid and insecure and selfish, those that at some points in our lives are unlistening, those of us that at one point in our life had hearts that were unfeeling like fat, that were dead, those that were dead but are now being made alive, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses, not just you, interestingly. Verse 10, my servant, the Lord Jesus, will also be And you'll do that because you will know and believe that I am God. You're going to know that I'm the only God, that there's no other gods. Before there are any idols that were made, I I existed. I am the living and true God. You will know, verse 11, that there is no Savior apart from me. You will know. And verse 12, you will declare it, proclaim it. You will be my witnesses. Now, I I love this because realistically, when we're struggling with fear, insecurity, or selfishness, anxiety, you start with a truth to combat it. The Lord loves you. You belong to him. He's with you. And honestly, for a lot of us, that might be enough. Oh, yeah, I forgot God's with me. I'm okay now. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I belong to the Lord. I'm okay now. But for some of us, it was like, well, great. (laughs) 
thanks, I knew that before and I was afraid then anyways, I'm still afraid. It, It doesn't mean anything. Perhaps our faith isn't strong enough, perhaps it's too abstract of a thought, perhaps whatever. But I love how the next kind of turning point here in the text is the Lord says, well, it's okay. Because I am also the God that does it for you. I am the God who transforms people. I am the God that, that brings rotten nations in. I bring Gentiles in. I bring hard-hearted, rebellious nations in. And I change them so they become the ones that testify to my mercy. I am the God of power and grace I am the God of might and strength. I am the God of love and kindness. It's, a, I think, a great consolation. As you think about kind of navigating what, what's coming in the, in the future world, we have so many things right now that are kind of constantly trying to market fear for us. It's one of the new kind of marketing techniques that I find so interesting is just how aggressively people try to uh, weaponize and monetize our fear. And here the Lord's saying, look, at some point at the end of the day, the future does not need to be a source of panic because I am the God who is responsible for your transformation. I am the God who is responsible for your sanctification. I am the God who is responsible for bringing you from death into life. I am the God who is responsible for changing you into the image of Christ. I am the God who is in charge. So at the end of the day, with our next associate pastor, whether we find him in eight weeks like we did Brandon, probably the fastest hire in our denomination that year, or eight months. I mean, realistically, then the magic number they say right now is to find an associate pastor usually takes about a year. Is it going to take us out? Well, it's the Lord's church. He's in charge of this church. He's in charge of our sanctification. He's in charge of our salvation. He's in charge. He'll provide. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be insecure. We don't have to be selfish. And again, as I mentioned even in the introduction, maybe there's this temptation that we might want to say, well, God, I mean, respectfully, I don't think you know what you're doing. Again, we would never say that outright, which is why I like kind of to make fun of it, but we do in our own hearts often say that. Maybe God just doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, maybe he just doesn't know. And I love that's actually where it turns, verses 14 through 21. No, he's the Lord who plans. He's planned it out from before the foundation of the world. He's planned, and he's planned it perfectly. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, this is what I've said, I've got it all planned. For your sake, I'm sending to Babylon. I'm bringing them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I'm the Lord. I'm in charge of Babylon. The most powerful nation on the planet, the nation that nobody would ever guess would be able to be defeated, I'm in charge of them. Thus says the Lord, verse 16, I am the one who makes a way in the sea. Open the sea at times, part it so that people walk forth on dry ground. I am the one who is sovereign over a chariot and horse, the greatest of military might. Armies don't scare me. Nuclear bombs don't scare me. Nothing scares me. Verse 17, I destroy armies. If I wish to wipe them off the map, I do so. Why? Because I am the sovereign God who has planned. Remember the past. 
But no, I'm doing something new. And I, I love how here you have this kind of predictive proclamation of the Lord Jesus. I've interacted with you, people of Israel, a certain way for, for ages. You've been under the Mosaic law. You've been looking forward to God's salvation coming, but a new thing is coming where the Messiah will step inside time and space and salvation will become not just an unknown hope, but a present reality. I've got a plan. I love thinking about that, uh, especially from like the disciples' perspective. Like, how many times in the ministry of Jesus do you think, man, God's really messed up on this one? How many times do you think they thought that? I mean, I guarantee they thought that Easter weekend, didn't they? I mean, they just watched the Lord Jesus go to the cross. They all go cowering. Well, the men do. The women don't. They're awesome. But the men go cowering in a room, and they're like, do you think God screwed up this time? Like, did he mess up? Is he an idiot? Is he incompetent? What did he do? Because they hadn't understood yet. They're not looking with the eyes of faith. God's got a perfect plan. It's a perfect plan, and it, it, it has no mistakes. It has nothing that frustrates it. It has no foibles. It's a perfect plan. And some of you know the, the way that Brandon got here. Some don't. Uh, one of the parts that I, I don't think I've actually shared this publicly. Uh, as I said, I, I can't navigate the next six days, but I, I do like to think years and years and years in advance. So I've constantly had a list in my head of potential candidates forever. I've had that forever and ever in my head. I've been looking for the first associate pastor for, I started, I guess, six, seven years ago. And Brandon was my number one guy when I knew it would become time to hire. The problem was Brandon was first in seminary, not available, and then had another church. So he was never going to be available, and so I thought we'd never have a chance to get him. Providentially, uh, he came open and he called me, uh, shot me the phone call and said, hey, by the way, I'm going to be looking for a call. Praise God. Our session the week before had just decided that it was time for us to hire an associate pastor. And he let me know that he'd be on the market and it might be an opportunity for our pulpit committee to talk to him. And I didn't know if the pulpit committee would like him. I assumed they would. I don't know. I just passed the name along. But the fun thing is, is I think Brandon and I had that conversation on Sunday and I tested positive for COVID on Thursday. And it's intriguing that like, I got the one key piece of information just prior to me basically going into the hospital for a month and then our downstairs bedroom in a wheelchair for a month, and then on crutches and a cane for a month. Uh, I was gone for three months, and we got the perfect piece of information to bring the perfect guy in four days before I got it. It was perfectly arranged. Now, could we have easily gotten cantankerous about that? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously. But the Lord makes no mistakes. He's planned from the very beginning. Now, I don't know that plan, And in fact, actually, you really could look at all of human existence as simply discovering the plan that God has already made. And I think that adds probably a very wholesome sense of adventure to think that really that's what the rest of your days are, discovering the plan that God has laid out for you. And honestly, some of us, when we're really kind of at the end of it, kind of maybe just don't think God's very good. And we would say, well, I just don't think your plan is very good. And I love that that's actually where he ends. You've got a rotten group of people in front of him. He's in process of changing them, but they're very slow to change. Look at verse 22. I love this. Yet even in light of all of this, in light of the fact that I'm the God who owns you, in light of the fact that I'm the God who is with you, in light of the fact that I am the God who is transforming you, 
in light of the God, the fact that I am the God who has planned every step of your way, verse 22, you still didn't get it, Israel. You did not call upon me, but you've been weary of me. You haven't brought me sacrifices. You haven't burdened me with your worship. You haven't been with me. Instead, verse 24, you've burdened me with your sins, Israel. You've wearied me with your iniquities. And I love verse 25. I, I am he. That's a special grammatical construction that Jesus is going to be adopting in the New Testament. Every time you hear Jesus say, I am, and they all fall down, it's functionally he's using this to highlight he's the Lord God. I am the God who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I love it. It ends with this kind of just wonderful statement and declaration of God's loving, eternal loving care of his people, that he is going to forgive sins and redeem Now, his enemies will continue to be his enemies. That's where the passage ends in 27 and 28. But that perfect plan is ultimately for our forgiveness, for our good, and for our great. Now, I'll end very briefly with one application. I suspect going forward, there's going to be many opportunities, as I mentioned, for us to be insecure or anxious, or fearful, or selfish. And realistically, Brandon is a very hardworking man, and our labor together has more than doubled, not just two pastors, but far exceeded. I'm a one man and a very limited one at that, and that's very easy to see. We're gonna have lots of opportunities over the next series of months to be upset, and to be scared, or to be hurt, opportunities to forgive. And realistically, I think kind of from passages like this, there's a really good opportunity for us to think about the fact that I either have chance to meditate on my own thoughts and my own feelings and my own actions, or I can meditate on the evil intentions of others, or I can stop and think these thoughts these thoughts after God, that, hey, you know what? This situation that I'm in is a good one because God owns me and he loves me and he's planned this out from before the foundation of the world as part of the plan of redemption, as part of my forgiveness of sins, as part of sanctification and part of the, so I see Jesus better. I I don't know how yet, but I know that's the path that we're being called to walk. Maybe it might be appropriate for us at the various times of the next series of months when we get bent out of shape, which you will and I will, to stop and reflect on the fact that God owns us and whatever situation we've been put in, he's doing it for a reason. And that reason is the plan of redemption. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word even when it's hard to understand or even perhaps in this case more difficult to implement. Would you forgive us for our sin? Forgive us for how easily led astray we are.
And would you equip us to think your thoughts after you? Bless us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.